0: running down, running down, batteries run down, people run down, buildings run down. Tonight we're talking about running down and we follow up with our uh, message last week about Joseph and the qualifying verse about him being involved in this In his running. He ran out of the house, remember, ran out of the house, left his garment behind And I told you if I had a six-point, it would have been, take your garment with you, okay? But anyway, tonight, we're going to be looking at probably the most famous runner of all time, okay? Anybody have any idea who the most famous runner of all time is? Say again? Jonah. (laughs) Bingo. Jonah. This is a 2,800-year-old story. We're going to look at Jonah chapter 1, beginning with verse 1 and 2. And if you want to follow along on the screen, that'd be awesome. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Jonah 3 and 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim it, the message I give you. And verse 5. The Ninevites believed God, a fast was proclaimed, and all of them, than the greatest of the leaf, put on sackcloth. That's burlap. Okay, We all know what burlap is. Very uncomfortable. All right? And then we go to verse 5. It says, "The Ninevites, okay, I'm going to read it again. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest of the least, put on sackcloth. Verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Then Jonah chapter 4. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and a compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life. In other words, he says, just kill me. Okay, Jonah says, just kill me. You sent revival. You didn't destroy Nineveh, so just kill me. For it's better for me to die than to live. Isn't it great that God does not always immediately answer our prayer? Just kill me, okay? All right. Then we're going to go to Jonah 4, 4 through 11. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Verse 5 says, Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it, make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight, and should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? This is what, like the city of Tulsa, getting saved in one day. They all came to the Lord, and it was supposed to be a moan of joy for everyone. And Jonah gave probably one of the shortest sermons in history and probably the most effective one ever given. The sermon lasted anywhere from four seconds to eight seconds. Probably four seconds if he would have been someone from the north of the United States and about eight seconds if they were from the south. But it was four to eight seconds long and very, very, very effective. How many of you believe that ought to be the standard length for a sermon nowadays, four to eight seconds? Okay, some people believe so, okay. An entire city repents. Jonah should be ecstatic. He's not. He's angry. Who was Jonah? All right. We don't know a lot about Jonah other than we know his father's name, Amittai. We know where he came from. We know that he lived about 2800 years ago, and he was a prophet that was active in Israel. We know his field of operation was the great city of Nineveh. Nineveh, I'm sorry. The writer of the book of Jonah liked the word great. The word occurs over 14 times. In Jonah, I mean, yeah, in Jonah. The city was great in size, but it wasn't really great in character. The Ninevites did horrifying things that would sicken your stomach if I were to enumerate them tonight. The city of Nineveh is in the news very frequently. Not long ago, the Iraqi government reported that the city of Mosul, which had been occupied by ISIS, had been liberated. Mosul is Nineveh. The city's 250 miles north of Baghdad, and the modern news has it very prominent nowadays, and it was prominent 2,800 years ago. This is a story of struggle. It's a story of anger, and it's a story about running. And what can we learn from this story? Number one, anger is not always bad. Well, Jonah had become very angry. He was upset with God. And when you study the Hebrew text, the phraseology goes something like this. It was anger to Jonah, great anger, and he was angry. Do you get the point? This was great anger to Jonah, great anger, and he was angry. This is a literary use to express great emotion. Three times he repeats the word anger or angry. The writer wants us to know that he was really ticked, okay? And there is a reason for his anger. The Assyrians were like the Nazi stormtroopers in World War II, okay? They were a pitiless power-crazed foe. They showed absolutely no mercy when they were in battle, and entire peoples were uprooted in the fury of their conquest. They extinguished the northern kingdom of Israel for Jonah... Nineveh wasn't any ordinary city. It carried a doom laden, tragic memory for all of the Israelites. It stood as a symbol of evil incarnate in the day. The whole idea of God not bringing justice to that city made Jonah mad. And I repeat that point. Not our point one, I should say, not all anger is bad. As a matter of fact, in the world we're living in, Perhaps there should be a little bit more righteous indignation arising. You see, God gets angry because he loves and he cares. Some people have this picture of God being a stoic, somewhat robotic, and not very emotional God. Okay, But that's not the biblical picture of the God that I serve. God is passionate. He's passionate about you. Hosea talks about a God whose heart churns within him. God is provoked. He is grieved and he's angry at times. But God's wrath and anger is his display of love. He's like a compassionate mother who's moved for her children. He's like an ecstatic father whose wayward son is coming home finally. Uh, he, he, you know, in Zephaniah, he, he describes God as a person who sees his children, and he dances and spins wildly and prays over his kids. You know, I think about the things that we're angry about. And we need to get angry every now and then. You see, God's not looking for indifference. We don't have a God who's an indifferent God. He's looking for a people who are willing to be passionate, It's much easier to look away from victims than it is to be passionate or get angry on occasion. If God was looking for indifference, he would be really happy about the wonderful catchphrase that we have now. Whatever. It's easy to look away from victims. Victims and their plight interrupt our dreams, our hope, our work. Indifference causes us to look away from our neighbor's pain and plight. Indifference causes us to view the lives of others as meaningless. Indifference is worse than anger. You see, anger can be creative. A song, a play, a poem, a movie can be created out of anger. But indifference is never creative. Never Anger will denounce, it'll fight, it will elicit a response. Indifference elicits no response, and indifference is not a response at all. Is it possible that we have a case of compassion fatigue in the church? We've seen so much pain that maybe we just don't care very much anymore. There was a young man on a playground... And he was with four other kids. They were bigger and stronger than he. And the four other kids knocked this other kid to the ground. And they began to kick him, and they began to spit on him. A teacher saw it from across the grounds and came running and rescued the little kid. That's injustice. That creates indifference inside of you? Or does that make you angry? I know a lot about this story because that little kid was my son. I wasn't there to show my anger, but I was passionate about it. one day I was reliving it as I was driving a couple of days afterwards. And driving down the road, I began to cry. I began to get angry. I pulled over the side of the road because I couldn't see. And I pounded my steering wheel because I was angry. And there was not a lot I could do about it. if it's possible, that God could touch some of our hearts and remind us to stop looking away. It's not wrong to be angry. It's a passion. I believe it's wrong to be indifferent. Number two, running from God is a sprint downhill. Jonah got up, and he went in the opposite direction that he was supposed to go. He was running from the Lord, and man, did he run. He ran 1,500 miles. He was sent northeast to Nineveh, but he ran southwest. He's called to speak, but he stays silent. He's standing in the presence of the Lord, but he walks away. He runs to Tarshish, which is a real place, but it's also used as a metaphor to the ends of the earth. Tarshish could be any place that a person turns his back on what his destiny is supposed to be. If you look at the map, Jonah in his run is going downhill. You see, Nineveh is up here. Tarshish is down here. He's running down. He goes down into the boat. He goes down into a deep sleep. He goes down into the belly of a fish. He's going down. He's running down. When you run away from God, you don't stand on level ground. There'll be an increasing deterioration of your spirit. There'll be an increasing inability to hear the whisper of God into your heart. When you run away from God, you don't stand there on even ground. When you're delaying a yes answer to God, you are running, and you are not running on level ground. You're running farther and farther away. You are Running down. Number three, when we run from God, we run from love. When we mention Jonah, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Anybody? This is not a rhetorical question. I want somebody to answer. The fish. We all do. If somebody were to ask me that question, I'd say, the fish, okay? A whale. We say that, okay? But we see the big fish in the book of Jonah so much that we miss the greater vision. The vision of the great God. You see, Jonah's really not about a big fish. It's really not. There are 48 verses in the book, and God is mentioned 39 times. Fish, God. It's about the great God. He is shown to be beautiful, and he loves the Assyrians, though they are despicable. Isn't it amazing how God can love people that we think are unlovable? God sends wind on the sea, and the sailors cast lots, and God's in all of that. Then he happens to send a great fish, and he is gracious and he's kind-hearted. He's patient with Jonah as much as he is with the Ninevites. I wonder which one he loved more. But if you're running from God, you're running from love. Who does that? Someone said, not me. Does that the most powerful service that I've ever heard of? Ever heard of? We've heard of Jonathan Edwards and his message, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and I know that was a powerful sermon. Uh, And there have been more, and I've been in powerful service, but I wasn't in this service, but I heard about it. And the preacher went to the pulpit to preach, and it was at a youth camp, and when he got up there, The person that was supposed to be watching his two-year-old little boy somehow let him go. And the little boy wandered up on the platform and walked up to his daddy. And his daddy picks him up and hugs him and starts talking about his love for his son. And he parallels it with the Heavenly Father's love for his children. And, And it was a beautiful, sentimental thing. But he puts the little boy down and kind of pats him on the seat of the pants. And the little boy runs away about four steps. And all of a sudden, he stops and he pivots and turns back around. And he throws his arms out as wide as he possibly can. And he starts running back to his daddy, and his daddy reaches down and grabs him up under the shoulders and picks him up, and the little boy embraces his daddy around the neck as tight as he can, and he puts his head up under his chin and pulls his body as close to his chest as he can to get as close as he possibly can. Just Arms and loving his daddy, and instantaneously in that service, people drop to their knees, weeping and crying. People giving their hearts to Jesus, some people immediately healed in that moment. In a demonstration that I don't know, I guess God arranged it, of God's heart of love to you. And how passionate and how loving He is to all of us. We're running from God. We're not just running from God. We're running from love. You know, if we get a picture of God in that way, it will change our praise. If we'll get a picture of a loving God in that way and how passionate and how loving and how angry He is for you, it'll change everything about us. You know, remember the story I told you about my son a while ago and how angry I was? You remember that show, the... uh, Ten Most Wanted. Did you ever watch that? And, and it, I can't remember the guy's full name, but his son, who was murdered tragically, is named Adam. His son was kidnapped and, and brutally uh, uh, murdered, and they, they made a movie of, of this happening. And in the movie, the man answers the phone, and when he answers the phone, the police are telling him they found the body of his child And the man just goes berserk. He tears the room to shreds. He breaks furniture. He busts windows. He breaks out the mirrors. He rips the curtains. Everything just completely destroys it. He loved his son so much. I wonder what it's like when you get hurt and our heavenly Father looks down and sees the injustice that you receive, I think you can multiply that picture of Adam's father as many times as you want, a million, say, and see what God's offense is toward the hurt of his children. Number four, we've got to allow Jesus to disappoint us. Did anybody hear that? That was a hearing test. If you heard it, you passed. Sometimes you got to just kind of ignore stuff. Okay. We've got to allow Jesus to disappoint us, and some of you are looking at me like a dying calf in a hailstorm, okay? What? We've got to allow Jesus to disappoint us. There's three things that you'll probably never, never hear a preacher say, okay? Number one, let's skip the offering tonight, okay? Number two is we don't need any more volunteers. And number three, I'm disappointed with Jesus. Please put your stones down. Until I'm finished, hear me out. There's a sense in which I'm disappointed in Jesus. I want you to listen, okay? It's not that there's anything wrong with Jesus, okay? Sometimes we have false expectations of Jesus, because He doesn't respond to our wrong expectations of Him, we get angry. Sometimes we don't understand pain. And perhaps because of erroneous teaching, we think that we're going to all be spared pain. I'm sorry for the heretical teaching, but it's false. The Word just does not teach that you'll never have pain. Even though we pray long and hard, he does not always say yes to us and we get disappointed. Have you ever seen one of those nodding dogs in the back of a car? I guess a husband and wife go into the novelty store and they look around and they see these dogs that they feel are cute and they decide, we're going to buy one of those. We're going to put him in the back of our car and we put him in the back of the car, we will never see him again because we can't see him, we're not paying attention to him, but he will be an eternal source of entertainment for the people that are following me everywhere that I go. And I can get joy from the knowledge of that. And they've got the nodding dog back there. Every time he hits a bump, he goes, you know, the nodding dog. We want nodding dogs. The problem is we want a nodding God. I want this. Lord, do that. Could you make it happen? We want him to do that. We want a God who always says yes to our request. I want to know do you always say yes to your children? You didn't, did you? Because you were responsible parents, and you know what happens when you say yes to your children all the time. They become overindulged and they become spoiled. Now it's different when they become your grandchildren. You could, I'm just. But you get it. If you doubt what I'm saying, I want you to look at the Pharisees. They wanted Jesus to be this and he was that. I want you to look at Salome, who wanted her children, her sons, James and John, to have thrones in Jesus' kingdom. One of them got boiled in oil, and the other one was beheaded. A little disappointing to Salome. Talk to Peter. He didn't want Jesus to go to the cross. No, never. It'll never happen. That didn't work out for him. Talk to Jeremiah. Talk to a a whole bunch of people in the Bible, including Jonah. Talk to the rich young ruler. He wanted to make a deal with Jesus. Says no deal. No. God says no. And they're disappointed in God. They had unrealistic expectations of him. And if we're going to have a faith of maturity... We must have a faith that will allow Jesus to disappoint us. Not that there's anything wrong with him, but it's wrong with our unrealistic expectations of him. You can say anything to God. You know that? When we read Job, we find out we can say anything to him. Job says to God, kill me now. Just kind of like Jonah. Have you ever gone to Mardell's and looked where they had the little refrigerator magnets magnets, and seen one that says, kill me now, God? Have you seen one of those? If you find one, let me know. Kill me now. We can be angry with God, but we got to tell Him. Lord, I'm angry. Even if our anger is wrong it will not change his opinion of you or me. Number five, it's possible to have your body in the church and your heart completely in a different country. Jonah goes to the east side of the city. His anger is unresolved. It's turning toxic. He stopped running, but he's still running in his heart. He's not running physically, but he's still running in his heart. He's done the job, but his heart is still distant. The leaf has grown. He's not happy. There's a worm, and he's still not happy. And there's an east wind, and an east wind is spoken of by Hosea in the Scripture as a form of judgment. And God brings the east wind, and he says, Have a little judgment, Jonah. See what it feels like. Jonah's in the church. He's done the responsibility, but he's not in the church. He's in the church, but he's not in the church. That could happen to us. We come to the house of God because it's a habit, and it's a nice thing to do, but our heart's just not really connected. We stand, and we praise, and we lift our hands, and we worship God, and we do all of those things, but somewhere along the line, it's just not connecting with the heart. Habit. Heart isn't there. But the book of Jonah ends with a question. And if you ever watched a movie and you realize the movie's coming to the end and you're getting anxious, you're on the edge of your seat. You're getting ready to find out who done it. And while you're sitting there, all of a sudden, before you find out who done it, the credits begin to roll across the screen. You go, what? Why? No! This can't be happening. Not that ending. Kind of way it was in Jonah. He asked Jonah, he said, should I not be concerned for this great city? And we wait for Jonah's response, but the credits begin to roll. It's over. Jonah never answers. Perhaps God leaves us with that open-ended question. Should we be concerned? Are we running? Are we running from the responsibility? Are we running from the call? Whatever that call may be. Let's stand.